take first watch. new episode of the first watch podcast i'm zach and i'm here with cole how are you i'm good how about you i'm doing very well actually i'm getting married in a couple days to some bureaucrat i've been thinking about running away and going into the desert what do you think about that i mean just don't lose your comb you'll be fine (laughs) today we're here to talk about a movie that is having a brief theatrical re-release that is ang lee's 2000 martial arts period drama romance masterpiece Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And joining us again after being here with us to talk about James Cameron's re-release of Titanic is James. How are you, James? I'm good. Glad to be back. It is funny that I am back for the two re-releases, even though I didn't (laughs) get the (laughs) re-releases. Well, if it makes you feel better, I did see Titanic in theaters, but I did not see Crouching Tiger in theaters. In part, I think because of Kevin Feige, Marvel Studios, ant-man there really are not a lot of showtimes for this crouching tiger hidden dragon re-release i didn't find none of them were very conveniently timed or located a lot of the theaters around here were like one showtime at 3 p.m and that would be it and it's a theater that's 15 miles away which maybe doesn't sound like a lot but in dallas is a considerable distance so did you find that cole you you're in la so yeah i mean there's a bunch of theaters showing it here but they all had like either 5.30 5.30 or 7.30 and that was it. There's one AMC in Burbank I was able to go to for like a one o'clock showtime and it was packed. All due to the movie that finally booted Way of Water and M. Night Shyamalan and everybody out of IMAX, mm. Quantumania, which I don't think any of us have seen yet. But James, what have you been watching recently since the last time we talked to you like a week ago? <laughs> Well, I haven't had many theatrical releases still, so I've been getting caught up on old Guillermo del Toro films. I've seen everything of his post-2015, and I've obviously seen Pan's Labyrinth many, many times. But all of his early films, like the blockbusters, like Blade, Hellboy, Pacific Rim, I'd never seen any of them. So I've just been this week working through those. Some good stuff, some not so good stuff, (laughs) but I'm glad to finally like fill in those blank spots. It does sort of just make me wish Guillermo del Toro's The Hobbit had actually (laughs) happened, because uh, that's all I could think watching Hellboy 2. Yeah, Hellboy 2 specifically feels like a screen test for that, because Mm -hmm. it's almost sort of the blend of the Mignola designs and then some of the stuff that he was working on with Pan's Labyrinth. And it's this cool little fusion of styles that's like, yeah... I really would have liked to see what his Smaug would have looked like. In fact, I've seen concept art of it, and it looks really cool. There's so much visual style in the troll market scene where I can just imagine copying and pasting so much of that into the goblin scenes in The Hobbit. Just desperately wishing that that's what we had gotten. Didn't happen. Did not happen. That movie particularly has always reminded me of Jim Henson. Movies like Dark Crystal Labyrinth, where it's just these very exquisitely designed sets full of puppets and just weird effects. And like you're just kind of in this world. Del Toro movies, when they lean into that production side a la Crimson Peak, just kind of hit a really interesting aesthetic level because of how ornate they are. 
Mm. Any standouts of those that you've been watching? Hellboy 2 was probably the biggest standout. I'm not much of a blockbuster person in general. So for me, it was just all about the aesthetics and Hellboy 2 is just aesthetics, maximalism. It's everything I want from Guillermo del Toro's aesthetic, essentially. I'm probably going to do one last Pan's Labyrinth rewatch because I haven't watched it in like five years. Did you see his Pinocchio movie from last year? I did. So that's what kind of kicked off my attempt to like fill in the blanks. I've been trying to do that with a lot of directors whose filmographies that had new releases this year that I hadn't fully filled in their blank spots. I really liked his Pinocchio. It has a lot of problems. I don't like the music. You called that one, Zach. Yeah. It's not as insightful as I wish it was, but aesthetically, it's everything I want from it. And the vocal performances are, aside from the singing, <laughs> quite stellar. There was a lot to love there, and I think it still is in like my five favorite animated movies of the year. Yeah, not a huge amount of competition in that field necessarily. No. What, else, <laughs> what else is in that range for you? Anything of note? I adored Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Mm. It actually didn't get released in theaters here until January, so I only just saw it. <laughs> I actually still haven't seen that. Currently experiencing an existential crisis over Dean Fleischer Camp <laughs> being attached to a quote-unquote live-action remake of Lilo and Stitch starring Zach Galifianakis. That who's doing that? Apparently Galifianakis is meant to be Pleakley, which has me just like reaching for the knife. <laughs> what a fucking miscast. Give me the pills. <laughs> that thing is going to be unholy. Yeah. I can't even imagine. You guys ready to hear Chris Pratt as Stitch? Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> if you've listened to our Disney episode, you know that Lilo and Stitch is my favorite Disney film. It's my favorite Disney animated movie. I think that there's something really spiritually disturbing. I know that sounds dramatic. About taking that specific movie and making it into this like bullshitty Beauty and the Beast Aladdin type of like remake because it's one of their last traditionally animated films before the pivot into 3D CG animation and it's got such a distinct watercolor vibrant visual style the character designs it feels like I'm getting spit on I think about it it's really bad I really hate it I really wish it weren't happening <laughs> it's probably unfair but it makes me not really want to watch Marcel the Shell because it's the same guy. Sorry to Jenny Slate and Isabella Rossellini for that. Isabella Rossellini is great in it. She's amazing. <laughs> and so is Jenny Slate. The vocal yeah. performances in that film are so earnest and touching and I'm also not much of a nice core person and it just kind of won me over yeah. with its twee same. adorableness. It strikes the right balance of occasionally morose to kind of like make it work so it's not insufferably sweet considering the competition this year for animated films it definitely is up there turning red i've been obsessed with the whole year the four town songs not getting nominated for best original song is a crime <laughs> <laughs> but i think that's really it i didn't really love mad god mm. i appreciate it but i did not enjoy it that's kind of weird in the del toro discussion del toro even one of the main pull quotes in that original trailer was like phil Tippett is a master it's like the extreme end of what we were saying about del toro woodard is like pure aesthetic it is pure mm -hmm. setting and just being taken through it like i think cole compared it to a bosch painting or it's like a broidal painting yep. where it's just like full of fucking like characters and scenarios and it's almost like incoherent because it's so dense with Bleh. yeah i think i kind of would have preferred 
consuming that in bite-sized chunks mm. than sitting through it in one sitting. Because by the end of it, I become numb. Sure. Yeah. I think right when that had its streaming release, Cole and I actually watched that on Zoom. Like we watched it together, streamed yep. it, and it was like that's a good movie to have somebody with where you just can have like a little bit of just like digesting mm. it almost. And I also think it probably works pretty well on a theater screen where it just overwhelms you with how big it gets just that scale yeah. of the environments i imagine i will end up seeing marcel the because i'm trying my best to get through all of the features nominated for an oscar including one that i'll talk about today one of the ones not nominated Cole, you can correct me if i'm wrong on this the woman king zero nomination zero right? which is absolutely psychotic it has received nominations at many of the other awards specifically for its lead actress viola davis and in some cases for supporting actress Lashana Lynch. I finally caught up with that because they put it on Netflix. I have a little bit of commentary there because when I put on Netflix, the day that they put The Woman King out, nothing on the front page. Nothing on the new release page. <laughs> like, okay, we just got like this huge action movie that did pretty well at the box office, like big movie star performances in it. Nothing. Just no way to tell you that it's there, which I find a little ridiculous. But that was a cool movie. Big, exciting. One of the better action efforts of the year. But yeah, surprising that that didn't make it in for Best Actress over uh, a couple of names. <laughs> kind of most, what do I want to call this? The most infamous movie that I've seen recently. A movie that got its Oscar nomination, perhaps over Woman King, that is for Best Actress for Andrea Riseborough in To Leslie. To Leslie is a film. It's a film. <laughs> it's a movie. It kind of reminded me of Hillbilly Elegy mm -hmm. by Ron Howard yeah. a few years ago. You know, it's a story about rural America and the citizens of rural America being like poor, dumb, dopey fucks that live miserable lives. The word po-faced comes to mind. The relevance of it, other than being kind of just uninspired bland, that it got its Oscar nomination through pretty rule-bending or rule-breaking means, as we've discussed on a previous episode. So the only real reason that anybody's watching it is because it stormed out of nowhere as this like social media sensation like gotta watch it for andrea riseborough's performance and then its subsequent oscar nomination there was a lot of hand greasing and very i would say slightly pathetic behavior honestly yeah, yeah. the movie itself only makes that behavior feel more pathetic like more embarrassing if they had done all that and then you watched the movie and you were like damn it really was a great performance though I probably would overlook it. I would probably let it go and just be like, great performance, great movie. But then you watch it and it's just completely generic bullshit. Yeah. yeah she gives like a decent performance as, you know, the struggling addict who lost all her money from the lottery and is trying to start over again. But she still loves alcohol too much. Like, remember what everyone accused Nomadland of being? This yeah. is what to Leslie actually I is. sure do. You would know it very well. <laughs> you know, anytime a movie focuses in on lower classes. And I think this is particularly true in America. There's a tendency to be exploitative of that because movies cost money and they're made by people who have money. And it's very easy for that to tilt into the realm of look at like the rich people are filming the poor people to show other people with money so that we all feel good about ourselves. We're going to pat ourselves on the back because we bore witness to the fucking tragedy of the commons or whatever. And that's exactly how Two Leslie comes across. <laughs> Having the Academy like come behind that with a nomination only increases how much it feels like that. Yeah, what was the Diane Warren? What was the last Diane Warren nominee? The one that had Mila Kunis? Oh, Four Good Days. Uh, it was like an addiction <laughs> I can't movie. I watched that. 
Oh, you did too? I'm so sorry. Yes, speaking of Oscar nominees, <laughs> having to go through all of them. You saw that, right? You saw the new Diane Warren original yeah. song, Contender. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is about the whole Andrea Riseborough thing is that she does not seem like the kind of person who would ever want an Oscar, would never chase after. Right, this is the lead actress of Mandy and Possessor. Yeah, she's not going for Oscar glory. She's got her own lane and she clearly enjoys it. But you know who wants an Oscar? Desperately. <laughs> she's hungry for it. She is about to fight anyone who mistreats their <laughs> own award is Miss Diane Warren, who every year attacks me with another dog shit movie. She wrote a song for it. And this year, the very special <laughs> offering that no one even knew existed until the nominations came out. And we were all like, wait, what the fuck is this? Is Tell It Like a Woman, <laughs> which is an American-Italian co-production. It is an anthology film of seven <laughs> shorts, um, all about different aspects of life being a woman. The first two are the worst, I'll say that. The first one stars Jennifer Hudson as a schizophrenic drug addict in prison <laughs> who is given a chance to go on a rehab facility outside. And she has a little back and forth with herself like Gollum almost about like whether she can trust anybody. And then it turns out that all of these shorts, except for one at the very end, are based on true stories. So they basically use the true story thing as a plot twist. <laughs> And then the second one has Cara Delevingne as a mentally unstable homeless person on the streets of LA that Marsha K. Harding cleans up. This is like a collection of shorts that your mom would share on Facebook and say, oh my God, it's so <laughs> inspiring. And then the last three shorts all have the song in it. And then the end credits include the music video for the song. And remember Fight Song by Rachel Platten? If anyone remembers that, it was the song that Hillary used in her campaign. Mm-hmm. Not ringing a bell. <laughs> Stream it after we record, and it'll remind you. And the song is an inferior version of that. <laughs> this was a mesmerizingly terrible movie. It is one of the most bizarre things I have ever watched because of an Oscar nomination. And I've seen some weird shit. I mean, for the last several years, I've been watching every single Oscar nominee, even all the way down to like best documentary short. And. Diane, write another ballad for Cher or Celine or something. Stop trying to gun down an Oscar. Don't question the number of writers on Alien Superstar because they'll just get dragged all over the internet once again. <laughs> Stay in your lane. <laughs> on the flip side, there actually is another tiny small movie nominated for some Oscars that was actually pretty good. So I caught up with Living. Mm. The remake of Akira Kurosawa's Ikiru, this time setting the action in, I believe it's 1940s Britain, like it's after World War II. But this film is about Mr. Williams, a old employee of London's Public Works Department, played by Bill Nighy in an Oscar-nominated performance. He finds out he has a terminal illness and he spends the last few months of his life trying to figure out what does it mean to like really live and to give back to people. Because he's just been stuck in this office for decades and decades and like his children are like horrible little shits and like nothing ever gets done at work. So, you know, he's just wasting life away. As an adaptation of Kurosawa, it's a pretty smart way to do it, honestly. You know, if you're going to transplant the action from one place to another. And Bill Nighy is giving, I would say, a legitimately great performance. Maybe not top five of the year, but a very lovely performance. He has the sweetness and also the sourness underneath. Sure. The kind of existence of resentment yeah. and repression. Ikiru seems like a good Kurosawa to revisit just because it is a very universal story. I believe it's an adaptation of 
it's a long fucking title of a Russian novel, but it's like yes. the day, a day in the life of Ivan Ilyevich or Ilyich or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty classic story. I was just looking it up. This is set in Living. It's set in 1953, which would have been one year after Ikiru came out. He should have just went and watched Ikiru. He would have been like, oh, fuck, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But overall, pretty good movie if you can catch it. It's from Sony Pictures Classics, so they're rolling it out very slowly. The producers of today's film, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sony Pictures mm-hmm. Classics. And I believe, if I'm right, they're also the distributor of the other film that I saw and would like to talk about. Ooh. This one was the international feature submission from Cambodia, although doesn't have anything to do with Cambodia. So... <laughs> This also played around on the festival circuit last year. Return to Seoul, directed by Davy Chu. This is a film about Freddie, a 25-year-old woman who was left by her parents in South Korea at an adoption center when she was just an infant. And she spent her entire life growing up in France with her adopted parents. She ends up in South Korea on a two-week vacation. And just by circumstance, she happens across the adoption center where she was left. And they are able to contact her parents. And the whole film is about this identity crisis that she has. Her name is Freddie, played by Park Jimin, in one of the most impressive acting debuts of the past five years, if not longer. But the whole film is about her identity crisis of what does it mean to be French? What does it mean to be Korean? What does it mean to reconnect with the parents who gave you up? The struggle of dealing with those emotions and even the language barriers. She only speaks French. They only speak Korean. So she has no way to even talk to her own father directly. So the film covers several years in her life as she's trying to figure out her place in the world. It reminds me a lot of Worst Person in the World, but maybe like a little thornier, a little more sour, a little angrier about the state of things. This is my favorite movie of the year so far. Very cool. Looking forward to catching that one whenever it gets around to us. I think it's going to be an Angelica release here, so it'll probably get here two to four weeks after it hits you guys, which tends to be about the pattern. That's the standard, yeah. And then I'll get it three months after that. <laughs> so on to our Sony Pictures Classics release of the day. So I buried the lead a little bit because I said that I didn't go see this in theaters today, and I didn't. But I did see it last summer on 35mm at the Texas Theater, which was fucking astonishing. And saying Sony Pictures Classics actually reminds me, I also, just to connect back to both an earlier episode and a movie that I know that we all three like, but that James particularly likes, I saw a couple there on 35mm, All About My Mother, which we did the episode about Parallel Mothers and All About My Mother, and then another Ang Lee film, The Wedding Banquet, which they showed on 35mm. So just anyway, the little connections, I sort of associate a little bit of that uh, with this, because I saw those two Ang Lee films, 35mm, same theater, and then Amadovar. Anyway, both of those are hilarious. If you've never seen The Wedding Banquet, and you're you know maybe a fan of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, you're like, what else Ang Lee should I watch? Go watch that movie. It's great. You'll realize that he's been a master of these sort of like interrelationships, dramas, romances, complicated social pressures from the very beginning. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was not Ang Lee's US breakout per se. As Cole would be happy to tell you, he'd already made you know mm-hmm. movies like The Ice Storm at this time. The Wedding Banquet, that's a US co-production. So he had been making American films for a little while before this. But this was an arrival. This was a real bonafide moment in time. Paul and I have discussed this before. I think we would both agree that this is like probably one of the five most important international features in the history of American releases, along mm. with movies like 
and Labyrinth, Parasite, where it was a significant cultural touchstone here in America at the box office. It was a significant moment at the Oscars, where it won four Academy Awards for Best Score, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction. It was huge. I think, looking back, I saw this movie in theaters with my dad. And I'm pretty sure the reason that we both saw it was because of The Matrix. Because this movie's marketing really heavily emphasized the wire work, the stunt choreography. It's got the same fight choreographer as The Matrix Trilogy. Yin Wo Ping. So it's a very similar hand-to-hand combat style at a time after that original movie had came out, but before Reloaded and Revolutions had come out. So it really like struck this action chord in terms of hype. And then when you go and see it, when you watch the film, you realize that it's got a lot more layers to what it is narratively. And for me, this is the very first subtitled film I ever saw in theaters. It was the very first... Not the first like martial arts movie I'd seen by a long shot, but like the first that probably belonged to the Wuxia genre, which is so significant here. Because what this movie is, in addition to being an action-based blockbuster, is a very historically rich work of genre, where it's kind of a throwback to the films of the 60s and 70s in Hong Kong, Taiwan, China, as well as a trip in time through an intentionally indeterminate China that exists between about 1600 and the late 1800s to early 1900s. It takes place in a specific dynasty, but it never really concretely places itself in any given year because it's trying to take you through, as Ang Lee puts it, the China of the imagination. And I think in order to appeal to the Western audiences, it also sort of functions like a Western and uses a lot of imagery of the Western, a lot of the themes of the Western, and makes it just fucking exhilarating, beautiful, transportive. Uh, it's a movie that like, I could probably talk about my own self for like two hours just blabbering into a microphone, so I'm not going to do that. But what a special moment in time it was, and what a cool thing that people are getting to see it in theaters again, because it's just really quite of another level than the types of blockbusters that we get. And to be only one week after Titanic, which we talked about on the last episode, Holy shit. <laughs> Movies are yeah. back. You know, it's like I said earlier, why hate watch Quantumania when these are available to you? Right. Hugely influenced by the films of King Who. I think, obviously, I watched Touch of Zen earlier in the year. Yeah. Ooh, great movie. Fantastic movie. This is all of that visual poetry. It's all of that history. It's that same, like, low-budget, on-location, actors costumes, production type of filmmaking, but refined in a way that's like, yeah, this guy later went on to bake Lust Caution, and he's a total tech nut, and just everything about this is just like the perfect godsend of like genre filmmaking from another country meeting like Hollywood at its absolute highest level. So Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon takes place during the Qing Dynasty. It says here sometime in the 19th century, but you know, again, it's the China of the imagination. So this focuses around two mighty warriors, Li Mu Bai, played by Chao Yang Fat, and Wu Chu Lian, played by Michelle Yao, who have both had feelings for each other for quite some time, but because of their lives and their lifestyles have never really been able to act on it. The plot kicks off when... Li Mubai decides to hand over his sword that he uses on all of his adventures, Green Destiny, 
just like this legendary mythical 400-year-old sword. And he decides to retire and give it to their benefactor, Serte, who lives in Beijing. So he trusts Yu Shu Lian to send it over to him. While she's there, she meets Jen, the daughter of Governor Yu, who's this rich and powerful man, and she's about to get married to another wealthy nobleman. But she's very unhappy. She wants to go out and live life like a warrior and to travel the road and have all these adventures that she reads about in books but never gets to experience. Things go a little topsy-turvy when a thief sneaks into the palace in the middle of the night and steals Green Destiny, which alerts everyone to the presence of the dangerous thief Jade Fox who murdered Li Mubai's master many years ago. And the film from there spirals out into this story about how all these different people interconnect and the emotions that they have for each other, all while trying to end the cycle of violence manifested by the sword. Right off the bat, that scene after the sword is stolen, that rooftop chase, and it's, I, I had tears in my eyes. I've seen this movie, I don't know how many times, but it's Michelle Yeoh, and I have spoilers, it's Song Ziyi, are running around, doing the wire work, like, Goyo Ma's score does so much heavy lifting for this film, in so many ways, but like, when they're, you know, just chasing each other, of these feather light strings you just feel like they're floating on the fucking breeze while then throwing chunks of concrete at each other and having a fist fight the action in this movie is remarkable it's stunning that first action sequence even though if i'm like grading on a curve might not be the most breathtaking action of the film it'll forever be my favorite action scene of the film mm. because it's the first and it's movies can do this right Mm-hmm. Movies can break physics like this. Yeah. Movies can take my breath away like this with action. I'll always remember being a kid, like seeing that scene for the first time and just being utterly like, why are not old movies like this? Why are action movies so boring compared <laughs> to this? Like, fuck the rules, fuck physics, just glide, you know, run up walls. The wire work is some of the most insane, unreal shit but it's so fluid and graceful that you just buy it immediately and it's just like no of course people who've studied martial arts for their whole life can fly basically (laughs) the thing that stands out to me about that scene over most action movies particularly in the last like 10 plus years it's entirely set at night it's entirely dark but it is completely legible everything is in shadow but you can see each movement of their feet each movement of their hands No matter what detail you're watching for, you can see it all. And you can follow through the sequence of the edit, like every piece of their gravity-defying chase. It's completely legible. It's thrilling. I always really enjoy just the imagery of the lanterns hanging in that scene. These dark stretches of corridor where people can walk through. There's big paper lanterns with the black calligraphy on them. A lot of that imagery just sticks in my mind. And then finally, the last thing is that they intersect during this chase scene, Michelle and Zongdu, Lucien and Jean, who are chasing each other. They encounter Bo, who is a guard. He's like a palace guard who's been alerted. He's the one that follows the thief back to the governor's compound and gleans that Jade Fox is probably inside with the Yu family somewhere. And then there's a father and a daughter who you don't meet right away. You don't meet them for another couple of scenes but it's a police inspector and his daughter who have also been tracking Jade Fox. And Cole already started to say this. This movie 
does such a brilliant job of deftly weaving all these different characters and sets of characters and the places and ways that they all collide. And I think that that speaks to Wuxia and the Western, like I was saying, where it's like, this is a big world of stories. We're focused on two stories which are interweaving between these two would-be romantic couples. And then all around that, there are all these other stories that intersect at different points because they're taking place in the same place at the same time because it's such a rich, full world of adventure. For example, hopping ahead, there's that scene that happens in the tea house and there's all the martial arts experts that have like a million names because they're just everywhere. This underworld is like full of people like this. Everywhere you go, there's another story happening. This is just one of many. It just provokes my imagination so much to be like, what else is happening on the Wudan Mountain that we don't even get to see in this movie? It does such a great job of making it feel like there's an entire world out there. And that, I think, has to be given a little bit to the production design. I don't think I could ever name my favorite shot from this movie, but it's kind of the first one in the movie that takes my breath away. Li Mubai has met Lucian, has said, I'm giving away my sword. And she says, come with me to Peking. You can give it to Sir Tay yourself. Then we cut to her going to Peking. And it's that big, big, big wide shot of the Imperial Palace is like the carts rolling in. And it... Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes me feel like I'm on a roller coaster and we just went over the hill. Like, my stomach's like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> this movie cost $17 million. Did you know that? $17 million for the budget. That's insane. <laughs> it's insane. How does it look like it costs five times that? I kind of think that throws it back to King Who. Touch of Zen is a very cheap movie. It's made with not amateur actors per se. But it's made with these people that King Who mostly worked with throughout his career. It's all just on location with a very small number of people. This is obviously a much bigger production than anything King Who had, but it's got that same spirit. It's all kind of locally sourced. You yeah. know, we got somebody that could make these costumes and we made the costumes, but it is like a stunning looking movie. Like $200 million blockbusters come and go every month of the year that do not look one tenth as good as this does. Mm -hmm. I could go on that for a while, but right. it's it's proof that you could give a mediocre director all the money in the world and they'll make you a mediocre movie. And if you have a great director with a great idea, they'll just make you a great movie regardless. Oh my God, the costumes in this movie. In just fucking. <laughs> I don't obviously have, I'm not a historian. It is intentionally kind of a vague period, but it just feels like a place that you could go, like so full. You really feel the size and the scale of Beijing. The casting in this, I think, is really spectacular, not only because of their dramatic abilities, but just what they bring into it, like Chow Yun-Fat being the John Woo muse of Hard Boiled, Killer, all their different collaborations together. Michelle Yeoh, obviously having her huge martial arts background. Zhang Zi was kind of like made into a star overnight by this. Like she was a mm -hmm. kind of a big name for a few years, which I think kind of peaked with Memoirs of a Geisha, which I always thought was a little bit funny because she's not Japanese. <laughs> she was also in House of Flying Daggers, mm, yeah. Hero, I think as well. This movie kind of precipitated Zhang Yimou's big blockbuster comeback, yeah. making movies for not like for the Chinese government exactly, but Zhang Yimu has like a long and complicated history with his government that would be interesting to talk about. But We'll do that another time. But the popularity of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon made it so that Wuxia movies and like historical epics and martial arts films 
had a big moment. Particularly House of Flying Daggers is another Sony Pictures Classics film. Yes, I it believe. is. Amazing movie. Just fucking gorgeous, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and then the kind of unsung guy in this cast for me is Cheng Chen, who mm. cinephile viewers and listeners may remember as Xiao Sir in A Brighter Summer Day, the Edward Yang masterpiece. He's also in Wong Kar Wai's Happy Together as kind of an unsung guy in that as well. He was also in 2046 later on. Just great resume, great actor. He plays Low in this, or Dark Cloud. He's like the bandit leader who is a love interest of Zhang Ji's character. And I think that like, God, he's just so good in this. I love how he sells almost that like old movie star persona as this thief who just swoops in like a storm and will, you know, take everything away, but it'll also steal your heart while he's at it. I think this movie has such a like classic retro vibe. Mm-hmm. It really feels like a 60s throwback in a ton of senses, which I think is interesting. Same year oh, yeah. as 2000, same release year as In the Mood for Love, which is another 60s mm-hmm. throwback Chinese yeah. language film. And even at the Oscars, it went toe-to-toe with another 60s throwback in Gladiator. Mm, yeah, totally. In all cases, what's cool is that they're modernizing it. They're taking those things and updating them with new technology so that you do more intricate wire work. And then compared to, say, King Who, there's a real distinct style of acting in movies like Raining in the Mountain and Dragon Inn, where they're very Peking opera, where characters very expressive faces and they kind of woo woo and it's not naturalistic in the way that cinema conventionally is ang lee gets to with this brilliant cast create such sophisticated drama and Mm. such poignancy and emotional depth wrought from these characters and wrought from their archetypes right at the very beginning lee mubai comes in and he's like i want to give the sword away because it's taken too many lives And you can feel the weight of his journeys even before you've really gotten to know him at all because of the depth of his performance, I think. Yeah. When you see Michelle Yeoh looking at him after the sword's been stolen and recovered, he's out in the yard training with Green Destiny. And it's in the middle of the night, you know, she's kind of got her hair down and she's looking at him from the shadows. And it's like, you just feel the weight of their history in her gaze. Yeah, this is an outright flawless cast. I think for me, what's quite revelatory about this movie, outside of how impressive it is visually, is its characterization. It takes all of these classic archetypes that we're familiar with, and it never once feels cliché despite the fact it's building off a lot of old cliches. And I think that's because Ang Lee is always a director that's focused on finding the natural humanity in the drama. And he'll do that no matter what he's working on. I think it's quite telling that all of his movies before this were either straightened out dramas or they were dramas with comedic elements. Mm. Going from Sense and Sensibility to The Ice Storm to this doesn't seem like there's a through line but for me there is a very clear through line of those are some of the most especially the ice storm naturally human dramas that i've ever seen and he carries that focus into this despite the fact that it's a wuxia epic playing on cliches and it's that combination i think that he applies to characterization that makes this not just an impressive oh wow why don't all movies look like this it's an impressive emotional feat every time you revisit it. I think those comedic moments are actually really key here as well. Really early on, you get Sir Tay is talking to Lucian, and he's like, look, Li Mubai is giving me his sword. 
He's hanging it all up. Do you think he might be trying to tell you something? Do you think maybe like a little? He's like trying to give you like a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He he even has a line where he's like, "Look, even great heroes can be fucking idiots when it comes to love." There's just a cheekiness that exists under the surface of a lot of this. I find like Zongzi's character really funny because she's so impetuous. She's so stubborn. Like, she just won't ever take no for an answer. She won't ever take yes for an answer. I love that scene when she's at the restaurant and she's giving that long, complicated order. And the waiter's like, I'm going to have to go somewhere else to get all this. And she's like, well, go. (laughs) Hurry up. She's just so angry at the world. Yeah. And she doesn't want to be anything other than angry at the world. And she'll let it manifest in any way. And she won't give anyone an inch at any point. (laughs) She'll destroy everything. She's a really big contrast to the past generation as represented by Michelle Yeoh and Xiao Yun Fat's characters. They're totally the opposite. They're reticent. They don't want to ever go against the grain if they can help it. And it's their maturity and their discipline, and it's also their undoing. Their biggest flaw is that they don't have enough of that hard-headedness to say like, no, wait, this is wrong, and I'm going to have my way. In that way, they form really brilliant foils to each other right away you can see that between the two women they're talking about freedom and how much she envies the freedom of these wuxia fighters and then lucian tells the story about how she was originally engaged to somebody that limu bai sworn oath to who died and because of the memory of this person and the honor and rules of their code of ethics they don't breach that So they develop this romance that they never get to actualize. And so we see how, whether you're an aristocrat or you're a nomadic warrior, there are these rules that you have to live by, these cultural norms that are restrictive and repressive. And I think that is a core theme of like every Angie movie. The next thing that he would do after this that was big, the big Oscar nominee, should have been his best picture winner, Brokeback Mountain. It's all about that. It's all about the repressive norms of masculine American archetypes. Again, the Western, the connection coming through. He also did an actual Western, right, with Tobey Maguire? It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Ride with the devil. That's oh, right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I was thinking it was Ride with the Whirlwind, but that's a Monty Hellman picture. There's a reason I <laughs> said thing. Sense and Sensibility, Ice Storm, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, even though Ride with the Devil <laughs> This is his best Western. In terms of the humanity, I actually wanted to shout out really quickly that set of characters I was talking about before, Bo the guard, and then the father and the daughter, who are the police inspector, because I think that they are given a lot of human depth, and they are also genre. You recognize these two characters from movies like Dragon It. It's like, we have the family business, and we're also after the same bad guy that the main characters are after for our own personal reasons. And they're just like, they're given a lot of depth here, particularly once they have their conflict and everything goes the way it does, and we should talk about that conflict because it's a fucking dope scene. There's there's like a moment where it's all gone down and the daughter is talking to Bo the guard who's like standing outside watching over her. And she's like, come inside. If we're together, we don't have to be afraid of the Jade Fox. It's like funny, but it's really heartwarming. It's like a really touching exchange between these two people who are like frightened and have endured losses and are like embarrassed scene that i'm talking about basically jade fox realizes she's been found out she's gonna try to attack the police officer who's been pounding her she draws them out into a conflict where she fights the father the daughter and the guard simultaneously and i wanted to really 
emphasize with this fight and all the fights, the characterization of this movie is also in the action choreography. For instance, when Michelle Yeoh is fighting Zhang Zi during that rooftop fight, she is never once trying to concuss this girl or break her leg or do anything like that. She's trying to stop her and bring her back. In various sword fights throughout this movie, instead of somebody trying to kill another person, they will use their sword to smack them on the cheek or slap them on the head. Or they will try to swing with all their might like they're trying to cut the other person in half. And you can always tell based on the acting during those scenes which is which. During the scene with Jade Fox, everybody's trying to kill everybody. They're all trying to kill her, she's trying to kill all them. But you can see that Bo the guard is a fucking idiot. Doesn't know how to do anything. He's swinging at random and is becoming more of an obstacle for his allies than an ally himself. And that's all told through fight choreography. And I find it stunning. Because most movies get to the fight scene and it's like, punch, 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 good guy wins, okay. This is like telling you a story in weapons and fists and jumps and hits and it fucking owns. There's intent and motivation in every gesture. Hmm? Every physical movement is rooted in character and storytelling. The choreography of the film also teaches you how to watch it right from the beginning. Like that first opening scene, the one between Zhang and Michelle, it's the only one that is hyper fixated on footwork. Like the camera will zoom in on the footwork constantly. Song trying to like fly away and Michelle steps on her ankle to press her back down to the ground. That's one of my favorite action beats (laughs) of all time. But that emphasis on footwork, it just reminds me that all of this is a dance. And the great thing about dance is that it tells story through movement. Placing that emphasis on the first action scene of the movie really teaches you all of this is a story through movement. And then as you learn all these different characters and how they fight and how they move, it makes the moments that happen in every single fight more shocking or upsetting or jaw-dropping. For example, like I saw this at a packed auditorium today. I guarantee you that everyone there has seen that movie at least once. And during that big fight with Jade Fox we talked about earlier, there's a particular shocking moment of violence. Again, we have all definitely seen this movie before, but we all gasped as this was the first time we've ever seen it. Talking about dad getting in the forehead. Yeah. (laughs) So the entire time that I watched that, this movie has that rare kind of, I watch it, I know where it's all going to go, but every time I'm like, well, maybe it could go different this time. Maybe they could beat her this time. It's that guard, Bo, he's in the way and she's using him as an obstacle to fight them back. And the moment that always gets me is she gets her weapon through this little hole on the end of this big pole spear that he's using. And then she starts like spinning it around and attacking the other two people with his weapon. And he's just kind of like bumbling around like, and you can just watch everything break down, watch her manipulate things with her vision and her intelligence and their desperation or inexperience at one character's case. And then I think it's also the weapons themselves that get characterized in the choreography. The way a sword works versus a spear versus like a big heavy stick is really significant. Obviously, nothing more significant than the Green Destiny sword itself, which has the tendency to just like cut any other weapon in half and they use that sound mix to really emphasize like how sharp and fast it's being used. You hear the constant vibration of it. It's almost as if it's alive. 
there's a really great moment where Serte is showing the sword to Governor Yu, and he just cuts a teapot right in half. He's like, Fwack! and it's effortless. It looks like he's cutting a piece of bread. Just whoop. Throughout the movie, they do a really good job of demonstrating that sword's unique properties, its power, how difficult it is to fight against anybody wielding it, and also the mastery of a character like Lin Bai, who comes up and fights Zhang Ziyi with a completely pedestrian sword and fights her to a draw or fights her to easy defeat. There's even a point where he picks up a stick with a sword and she's got a sword. He's fighting her with a stick that he picked up off the ground to show you that a sword is an instrument, has a certain set of characteristics and history and abilities, but the user is really the thing. And that's something that all martial arts movies are about, but this one just articulates mm. it purely through choreography. Yeah. Stunning. In regards to Jade Fox, that's also quietly one of my favorite performances of the film. I think it's Cheng Pei Pei. I find that Jade Fox distills a lot of what the thematic emotional core of this movie is. Yeah. Specifically, the limits and expectations placed on women in this fantasy society. And it's the three completely different reactions that that world has shaped in the three main female characters of the film. For me, that's the main drive of this movie. Zhang and Michelle are the leads of this film. Lee Mubai has had his journey at the beginning of this movie. It's the contrast between Michelle and Zhang that I think is, for me, the most emotionally interesting part of the film, where a lot of the love stories are fascinating and really humanist. It's that attention to the woman's perspective that I find kind of rare in a lot of these films. And Jade Fox as the villain, I did air quotes there, um, (laughs) really distills that because she's the worst case scenario. She's the bitterest, the harshest, the one that's been maybe the most wronged and has responded with the most violence. And that response trickles down through the generations. Each woman in this film responds to that same expectation and limitation and violence in a completely different way, not distilling it to just a cliche woman wronged, woman violent, and presenting us with multiple perspectives on how to respond to those limitations is what makes this immensely fascinating and satisfying. The whole reason that she killed Libubai's master in the first place is because, in her own words, he would sleep with me, but he wouldn't train me. You know, So she's lasting up against this world that refused to let her reach her full potential. In terms of that negative space, the stories that exist in the world that are not necessarily part of this story, her killing Libubai's master is the end of a different story we don't get to see. It's the end of a revenge story from her perspective where she was wrong and she got her comeuppance because of it. And it's complicated because like Li Mubai's got his own feelings about that and Lu Xian's got her feelings about that. I think by the end, what we see is how the reactions that they have end up hurting each other, these other women. Jade Fox's actions end up impacting Xu Lian because Xu Lian cares about Li Mubai in her own way for her own reasons. Just things like that. Because everything is contained within one world and interconnected one person's actions impact many other people 
I think there's also an implicit, because this one woman reacted this violently to the idea of not being trained, Lucien feels, well, I'm definitely never being trained then because they're never going to trust a woman after that. It just compounds the limitation on her. And that's never stated, but I've always felt that as kind of like an implicit, it compacts the resentment that Lucien has for Jade Fox. I think she has that with John as well, because she's so resentful of her marriage, not to mention, of course, she was trained by Jade Fox. So in a way, the frustration that Lucien feels towards her is, I think you could say, expressed at this younger woman. And I think that she looks at that in a way where it's like, look, I've lived by these principles and it's done this, so you do the same thing. And that's how culture perpetuates itself. But that's something that her character learns over the course of it, is that you have to make choices for yourself too. Otherwise, you live with your regrets. And you can't just say, suck it up and live with your regrets over and over and over until you die, because then you'll have nothing but regrets. I don't think that any one of these three women is the ideal. In fact, none of them are. They all represent full human perspectives on this issue, flaws and all. Yeah. There's like an equivocation of honor and tradition, where to be honorable is to honor tradition that Lucien kind of embodies. And one of my favorite instances of this movie displaying characterization through action is the second fight scene between Lucien and Jen where they're in the compound and Lucien will throw every weapon she can at her. And you kind of get the sense and the feeling that like she starts that fight out with, I'm going to teach this child a lesson. As that fight goes on, you feel that resentment building and you feel her get more violent, trying to not just teach this person a lesson, but take her out because she's coming for everything that I believe in. When she pulls out that big, thick bludgeon stick, I don't know what it's called, but the sound design in those moments when each blow hits, it feels like she's going to break bones. It hits the pavement and it shatters it. She's swinging with abandon and she almost does defeat Jen. Before she picks up that weapon, she picks up an even bigger mallet stick that is like too heavy for her to lift. Yeah. And then she goes back and gets the other <laughs> thing. So she's like going for an even bigger fucking whoop-ass stick before settling on this one. And there's such a progression in that fight scene, in the way that Lucien emotionally processes each action. That one scene is a distillation and a thesis of what the film is about. Those two are my favorite action scenes, despite the fact that that leads immediately into maybe one of the greatest action scenes of all time. Oh my god. That scene in cinemas is just beautiful. There's a particular detail quickly still in that compound scene where Lucian's been using the hook swords, which have gotten cut in half, as all her weapons do, and she just fucking hurls them. And when it cuts to the wide shot, I mean, it looks like they're bullets traveling across the screen. They go so fast and stick right into the wall. It's like, whoa, okay. (laughs) That was not a sparring throw. That is near to the end of the film. Gotta rewind gotta take it back we gotta do a flashback if you will we've already mentioned chang chen is sort of the fourth person in this movie because there is a flashback in the film where we learn source of jean's resentment a little bit deeper and more complicated than we were originally led to believe 
she's kind of got that classic Disney princess setup. She's an aristocrat's daughter. She's got to get married. She doesn't want to blah, blah, blah. We see that she's a martial arts prodigy. She should be studying this shit because she's so good at it. She's way better than everybody else around her except Lee Mubai, who's trained at it his whole life. So we understand her frustration. And then we learn through this trip back in time that she's also given her heart to somebody else, which complicates her betrothed marriage. And this is told through a scene where she is traveling with her mother in a caravan to the desert. They're attacked by bandits. She's playing with a jade comb inside her carriage. And Shang Chen, known as Dark Cloud, rides up, gives a command to all his bandits. He's like, don't touch the women. We're just here for their shit. Rides up, steals the comb out of the window, winks at her. And she's like, I cannot take this sitting down. Gets out, steals a horse, rides off after him. This, to me, this sequence is the moment where this goes from technically accomplished genre masterpiece, great blockbuster, to five-star, one of my favorite films of all time, is this flashback where we learn about this relationship. And I think one of the reasons when I revisit it, just looking at it from like a written perspective almost, is that it begins and she's relentlessly chasing him for this comb. She's shooting arrows at him. She's tackling him in a dry riverbed. She's hitting him in the head with rocks. She's doing everything. And at the very end of it, we are realistically, through these human characters, taken from that point to when she goes back to her family, she leaves the comb with him. It's the classic enemies to lovers thing. It's a cliche. And it's like, how did he somehow distill that into 20 minutes? Just press pause on this entire movie that you've fallen in love with and distill it all into one 20-minute scene and make it never feel cliche. That flashback is vital because you have to meet her as she is in the current day where she's got that sour attitude. We see that she's stubborn. She's willful. She takes stupid risks. She's selfish, single-minded. And when Li Mubai offers to teach her, she's like, no, I'm not going to let you do that. And even though Lucian and she develop a pretty beautiful relationship with one another, she doesn't really take her guidance either. Anytime Lucian's like, hey, you should do this as a sister, I give you this piece of advice. She's like, nah, fuck off. The significance of this character, Lo, is that this is how you get through to this character. You have to fight her. You have to be as stubborn as she is. You have to be willing to ride away from her as hard as she's willing to ride after you, and vice versa. If she rides out into the desert, tries to kill herself, you got to bring her back, tie her hands, put the water bucket in her mouth to make her drink. Like, this is what this character needs. She's, she needs that kind of a teacher, and that's how you get through to her. And it's got to be this unruly, wild guy out in the desert that has learned to survive that really wins her body, mind, and spirit, which I, I just, I fucking love that. Which stands in real contrast to Lee Mu Bai because he wants to tame her. Exactly. He wants to stop her from becoming a poison dragon is the phrase that he uses for her. Yep. And not knowing that this is where the poison would come from is this character that he doesn't know about yet. And it's the same thing as what's in him. But in order to tame her, which is a really, I'm <laughs> horrified that I've used that phrase of words. In order to do that, he's not willing to become that kind of unruly person who can come down to her level and like get through to her. He's completely misunderstanding her struggle and who she is and where she's come from. And I think that's something that Lucien is able to do. 
but she's resentful of the fact like you're willing to make an exception for this girl but i've been here the whole time i've been putting in the work i've been honoring the tradition and nothing when she comes into conflict with those two people they always try to teach her the lesson in the same way like hey you're a great martial artist but i'm a better martial artist and they've got the blade to your neck and they're like do you yield to which the answer from jean is always going to be no she does not yield it doesn't matter if you've got the gun to her head she's not gonna stop that's what low offers that they don't is he'll bonk you on the head back <laughs> like, he's not gonna back down he's not the type of person to you know how do i put this that is a martial arts cliche too and you can almost imagine the buys master doing it to him when he was a kid where it's like you know got the thumb to his neck i got you i've bested you Whereas Jean just as a character does not accept that. She's like, look, if your martial code of honor says that you have to stop right there, well, then I can just hit you. <laughs> Which we see at that fight with her and Lucian at the compound. She eventually gets bested by her and then swings the sword and cuts her open, which pisses Li Mubai off a lot because it's this yeah. very big violation of their honor, which I think is a big question mark. How good is that code of honor? How sufficient is it? And it is what causes the unspoken conflict between Lucien and Li Mubai throughout the runtime of this movie. They don't really get into the details of what's causing their difference of opinion in this case. But Li Mubai is like, I can train her. I can teach her. I can make her better. And Lucien is like, no, I know this girl. I could have been this girl. I chose otherwise, and I don't know why you're willing to train the girl that did not choose otherwise. Big elements of this is about trying to learn from past mistakes, seeing, okay, if Jade Fox is one potential, how do we prevent that? And I think that that comes up in different places throughout the conflict. I was talking about the fight with Bo and the dad and the daughter, and how when you watch it, you're like, well, maybe it could go different this time. It's sort of like you want to reach in Tap somebody on the shoulder and say, Li Mubai, tell her that you love her. You want to tap this guy on the shoulder and be like, hey, you need to go do this. But everybody's so caught up in the momentum of their part of the dance that they don't always see that as a potential option. I think that's sort of what Lucian and Li Mubai represent with their martial discipline, being patient and looking around. But then there's certain questions they can't always ask themselves. It's not really about the ability to learn from one's mistakes, but the inability of humans to learn from one's mistakes, the stubbornness of humans. It's finding that connection between Ang Lee's human drama instincts and the tragedy of genre stories, where it's like everything arcs to this original sin coming back home to roost by the end of the story. And it's figuring out how people walked that path of destiny. They weren't just objects in a genre story they existed in choices and those choices were a product of their environment like the choices that were available to lucian were limited because she's a woman in this world really after the flashback is over one of the first scenes that we see is one of the best images of this movie it's a contemplative little moment between Li Bai and lucian they're sitting in this stone room and what you see is like a window out into the bamboo forest and I find it to be like one of the best visual symbols of what this movie's like. It's like the wall represents their order and their discipline and their honor and their culture. And through the window, you see the beauty. You see the kind of zen that you're trying to achieve through all the discipline. But it's also like restrictive. It's kind of against nature because it's such a geometric shape. You've only got a snapshot. You've only got a window. 
of that beauty. You don't have the full picture. You're not fully embracing it. You're just finding a way to narrow it down. That image is also in the title card. The characters that spell out Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in Chinese. It's green, but if you look carefully, it's the bamboo design that's like inside the characters swaying around in there. So it's actually the same visual idea that's right there in the title card. But that exchange there where he puts her hand to his face in terms of the acting moments in this movie, I don't know that there's a better one. Are we all in agreement that this is Michelle Yeoh's best performance? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We respect everything, everywhere, all at once. She should have won her Oscar for this easily. This should have swept that shit. <laughs> you just don't really get a period epic quite like this. And it's like, I feel like we've been talking a lot about themes and love and everything. So we got to get back to the combat because right after that scene is the scene where Jean tears that restaurant to pieces. She basically gets out day one, steals the sword, and realizes that this underworld is just full of people that they see a sword like that, they want to fight you. And so she fights like 30 different people. It's a stunning set piece that is all rooted around her character, the power that she has. And it also shows how quickly she could become a villain in this world if she were really, truly full of rage, unchecked. Because kind of like I was talking about earlier, this is a scene where she doesn't try to kill anybody. When she fights people in this scene, she smacks them, she kicks them, she pushes them down a flight of stairs. But at no point is she cutting off heads or arms or anything like that. She's trying to like be a little civil, even though she's ripping people apart, which I think is really important in terms of the progression of her character and also sort of knowing what she could be one way or the other, good or bad. This is the scene for me that's the most evocative of the Western, oh, yeah. where she's the lone ranger with a chip on her shoulder who is, no, I have the quickest right. draw, and she'll prove it against anyone who challenges her. And if 30 guys are going to challenge her at once, so be it. It's very Doc Holiday, specifically in like Tombstone Doc Holiday. I just watched the John Ford, My Darling Clementine, where it's just like any moment that he has a chance to be like, look, I'm going to flash how fast I can draw my gun. Just try me. There's also always just something especially in like a wuxia epic or just any type of martial arts based film there's a thrill in watching one person just annihilate a ton of people not just annihilate but mock all of their names right yeah she's like giving them a lecture (laughs) while like spanking them with her sword and everything it's got a little bit of that kill bill crazy 88 vibe love any martial arts set piece that gives you the geography of a two-story space you have like staircase upper level lower level there's a point when she jumps and does this spiral trick up through the center from the bottom floor to the top floor the setup of it reminds me a lot of drunken master 2 which is a jackie chan movie from the early 90s and there's a tea house sequence in that where he just fights off a bunch of dudes from the top floor of a space that looks pretty much exactly like this one other thing i was talking about the weapons earlier but you have all the different warriors and they have like a truly absurd assortment of weapons in this scene there's like a guy with a big abacus like i don't know how you fight with a big abacus but sure there's also the guy with like the steel fan yeah like phoenix of the rising sun or whatever he's just like shaking it like after he introduces himself just like one of the best comedic bits of this entire movie is after the set piece is over it hard cuts to Li Mubai and Lucian who have arrived on the scene and then cuts to all of them in their bandages and they're all bruised up and everything. Was it just me or did the bridge in between the parts of the top floor somehow manage to fix itself? <laughs> they definitely had a great time tearing that set apart. There's like a great comedic aftershot where you see like the balcony go and just fall down. 
there really is like a great sense of humor to this movie that I think is really understated. Yeah. I was talking about In the Mood for Love, and the other parallel between them is that they both are interested in the Marshall novel. This is based on a novel that was written in the 1940s. It's like part four of a five-part series. The one that it's based on is also called Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And these types of novels were fucking hugely popular. I imagine they still are in some places. And I brought up In the Mood for Love because the Tony Leon character in that movie becomes a writer of this style of novel, of the martial arts, wandering priest. You see it a lot in 2046. He's like working with somebody writing stuff, you know, catching a sword with chopsticks type thing. I bring that up here because this scene is almost the clearest evocation of like the named warriors, the specialty weapons, kind of the comedic, absurd, but like really cool, inspiring nature of it. It's like, this is awesome, but also slightly ridiculous at the same time. For sure. Just lean into the fantasy of the movie, I think. Yeah. The power fantasy, especially. It's the Disney princess setup, and she breaks free and starts beating the hell out of people in a bar. It's great. I think the fantasy elements peak for me when Limu Bai chases Jen into the bamboo forest yeah. after she's, you know, nicked Michelle Yeoh's character open. And they just do this dance in the bamboo forest, jumping to the top of the trees and, you know, walking on branches as if they were walking on air, just going up and down and around. And, ugh. The Yo-Yo Ma score, I think, is really important for the transition between those two fight scenes. The one in the compound, incredibly percussive, lots of like kettle drum, hand drum, boom, 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 really emphasizing their footwork, the rhythm. And then once Limu Bai is chasing her, they're skating across this fountain, and they're up in the trees, and it gets very string-oriented. It's violins. It's very light, very airy, and it just perfectly encapsulates the brute sweaty physicality of one and then the enlightened soaring version of this which i think also has some interesting moments of physicality where it'll be like they're standing on the bamboo and she's trying to make him lose his balance by just like kick 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 kicking the branch trying to shake him off and he's just like no he jumps off she falls off (laughs) for a scene that has constant movement it kind of feels like it has its own form of stillness yeah It feels still and quiet, despite the fact that they're constantly swishing and swaying. And even in moments where they're not moving, the branches are moving. And it's so strange that it has that sense of stillness. And to me, it feels quite operatic. Oh, yeah. The entire world kind of stands still. The only thing that's happening is these two people standing on these bamboo branches, lashing out at each other. He's still trying to teach her. Yeah. She's bitching about it because she's like, God, not another lecture, but he's still just trying to like reach in and teach her something. I think if you think about it in terms of breath, that compound fight scene feels athletic. It makes it feel like your heart rate's going, like you got to breathe, like you're running in a track meet. This makes you feel like you need to hold your breath because you're on top of a tree and you have to be as light as possible. Hold your breath. Don't, don't breathe. Okay. And that gives it that sense of stillness and almost like a tension. It's not how we would normally think of attention, but there is a little bit of like a weightlessness to it. It's also, I think, yet another homage to Touch of Zen. The centerpiece where that movie cuts into two pieces is a fight scene that is in the roots of the bamboo forest. They're fighting at the bottom of the bamboo forest. So like in Ang Lee, he's like, all right, now we're going to fight on top of it. (laughs) Beautiful. So good. Just beautiful. This whole sequence to this day i don't know how they did it it. doesn't make a lot of sense to me either and (laughs) i don't want to know 
how they did it. And I know that's so weird because part of the magic of cinema for me is constantly existing in this ephemeral space. Maybe they actually just floated on bamboo stalks. Maybe that's just actually what happened because I can't imagine any other way that this happened. Because the other thing that always, always baffles me about this sequence is how did the camera do this? Maybe elaborate wire work, they were able to get these actors to do this. But camera-wise, how did this camera do it's this? so composed. How did this camera capture this? Not knowing how it happened means it exists in fantasy for me. That's, I think, when cinema is at its most magical. When it can pull this trick on you, it can capture this beautiful, fantastical image without you ever being able to figure out how they did it on your own. It's what makes cinema an art form that I gravitate to above all others. It's able to trick you and sell the fantasy in a way that so many other art forms aren't able to do on such a level close to reality. I think that compound fight scene dichotomy is important because of the groundedness. Because it's so easy to buy into that being physical and that being real because of the way that they executed it, and it being conventional. And then when they flip it immediately from this one to the fantasy, it just gets you that much more immersed into the physicality. You're like, well, yeah, okay, she was swinging the sword, and it cut the spear in half. When you swing the heavy thing, it breaks the concrete. And when you stand on the bamboo, you can balance there. That Yes, that's one, two, three. That all makes sense to me. This film in this sequence... Uh... Among the go-to primary examples of this, this pulling the wool over our eyes, selling a magical fantasy of choreography, I'm missing that kind of illusion from a lot of action and blockbuster filmmaking. I think that's part of why I don't gravitate to it as much, where what I'm more interested in is the humanity and the drama of a film. But This is one of those rare instances of everything I want in a film fully coming together. That grandness, that epicness, that sweepingness, that illusion without ever losing that humanity and that drama and that intensity of emotion. And all of that together is, to me, what cinema should strive for and what I want out of every movie. But obviously, I'm not going to get it out of every movie because not every movie can be Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I do think that humanity is key to it. Part of the reason why you're not seeing the illusion is because you're much more invested in these two characters and what it means that one of them is chasing the other one. When that fight's over, Limu Bai bests her, takes the sword from her, says, you don't need it. You need a teacher throws the sword into the water and she leaps after it and every time it makes me gasp so i'm like no stop what are you doing would you listen to him for fuck's sake for once god damn because i'm so deeply invested in their arc and where the movie's going at the same time like i want their conflict to end so that they can be allies and work because i know that there is a very malicious force that is in between them And it's something that we've been talking about the entire movie. On one hand, it's Jade Fox, her influence. And on the other hand, it's that poison that's inside of Jade Fox that has existed before any of these characters that brings them all into their final confrontation. Because after 
Jean jumps through that sword. She ends up in the water. Jade Fox comes by, lifts her body up, takes her way to a cave, and sets in motion this final plan. All right, we're going to run away together, be like we were, master, apprentice, and then everybody kind of converges on the spot together. If I don't care about what's happening, I'm less invested in that illusion, and it doesn't bother me if I know how they pull it off. It's only when I'm invested and when I care emotionally that I'm like, no, I need to maintain the fantasy. I think about Jaws, rubber shark, very obviously not a real shark, but my investment in Brody Quince makes it real. It makes the entire thing real. It's all because of that scene on the boat where they're drunk and sharing Mm -hmm. stories. Otherwise, the terror doesn't affect you as much. The scariest moment of Jaws happens during that scene because the shark hits the bottom of the boat right after they've all been doing that. And you're like, ah, Jesus! You have to want to psychologically buy into the fantasy. And that's what cinema is capable of doing. You can have subpar effects, but if you have emotionally made me buy into this fantasy, I will emotionally buy into this fantasy and it will go over my head a little bit more if you aren't fully able to sell the visuals. I think about that with the old makeup that Ang Lee uses in Brokeback Mountain. Not very convincing. Heath Ledger still looks like he's in his early 20s, but the emotional arc of that movie just brings you into what they're going through and the aches and emotions of all that. You need to be convinced to let go of reality. I think that's why the setting is so important here. Because there's two ways to go about a setting. One is like, all right, we picked this dynasty, this year, this style, we own it. And then the other one is what it's actually doing, where it's blurring the line. And it's more about memory and mood and genre and symbols. And by evoking that, I think it gives you something that you can ease yourself into and let go of. Hey, it doesn't have to be specific on the nose. It's more about a feeling. We talked about Titanic. Titanic's kind of the other version. Obviously, there's a lot of fantasy there, but it is extremely precisely detailed. That's the other side of this. At the same time with Titanic, they have those very computer-generated shots where if you look too close at them, the illusion fades. The liquid metal Terminator in T2. But if you are invested and if you are buying into the sequence, if you're buying into the emotion... You don't notice. Yeah. Like there's that one scene where Jack and Rose are running down the hallway and the water is rushing behind them. And if you notice that their faces have been superimposed on the stunt doubles, not very well done, but you're so invested in the moment that you don't care that it looks like AI gone wrong. Yeah. The movement is what you're paying attention to there. Yeah. The one that gets me is where they're at the front of the boat and Rose is like, Jack, I'm flying. And then it cuts to a hyper-wide shot and it pans across the boat. And it's like, that's a CG shot. We've just cut from faces to CG models and 90s CG models at that. It doesn't break my illusion because the emotion of that moment that we just cut from is so strong that it carries me through until that shot will cut away until the next shot, which again has real people. And that trust that a director has to have that the audience is going to have that emotional buy-in have to trust that you've done the job to emotionally buy them in i think that's true of everything that you see in this movie i think it's true of the wire work in the fight scenes i think it's true of that flashback sequence i was talking about because like that flashback i think could lose an entire audience if it is 
one hair out of place. Like, okay, we've established all these characters. Now we're just going and doing something else. Fuck this. We're off to the races, but now we're going to pause for 20 minutes. For a love story? There's a lot of cynicism in an audience that could definitely not buy into that. And one of the things that I think is so great about the movie is that, and it relates to Titanic a little bit. Titanic's a little bit more of like the tragedy where you're like, oh man, I see how it's all going to go bad. It's a disaster film. Crouching Tiger is really interesting because it's like, on the one hand, it's about a love story with two people that need to learn how to be more confrontational between Li Bai and Lucian. You need to be confrontational with your social order. You need to be confrontational with yourselves. You need to dig deep and realize that you love each other and you got to act on that. Be brave, be bold. And on the other hand, it's this story about these conflicts erupting between Jade Fox and Jean that are basically precipitated only out of frustration. Even though it's such an exciting action movie, I never want anybody in it to be fighting each other. The part where she fights all the guys in the restaurant's fine, like, cool, beat all those guys up, that's cool. But when it comes to them fighting each other, you don't want that. You want them to be able to find peace. And I think the movie sort of plays with this tension of like, okay, Lucian let this anger be repressed long enough, she's got to beat this girl's ass a little bit. They're going to have to fight this one out. It's a natural emotional thing for them to come to blows within the context of this fantasy world. But it's also something that costs them dearly when they don't know when to not fight, when they don't know how to make peace. And I think it brilliantly tugs on these different impulses when it comes to the set pieces. There's not a lot of death in this movie, but you feel it. Before the compound fight scene between Lucian and John, they're talking, quote unquote, as sisters, as they call each other throughout most of the first parts of the movie. And their conversation turns into conflict on a dime because there's this built up resentment between the two of them. But it's like, if you could just see it from another perspective for a second, the conflict would go away. As it does, after they fight and they go off and they're in the compound, Lucian gives her her, it's like a little ornament that she pulls out of her hair says go back to the compound give them this it's like they went from enemies back to friends like that because of you know Mm -hmm. the kind of shared values that they have and everything like that and i just think that that's such an important aspect to all this is that you never lose sight of these are humans engaged in these sword fights it's not just random people between the two of them there is this shared understanding of what a woman's role is and how they've both found different ways to strain against what that is They've both found completely different paths in life, and they both kind of long for the other person's version of what they've done in life. And it's that tension, that attention to detail of them both constantly knowing what the other person is and what they're doing that allows them to both have that intense emotional conflict that is driven home by those amazing kettle drums. They're my favorite part of the score. And also able to make them reconcile on a dime. That reconciliation is really what makes, for me, this movie about the perceptions of women, the roles of women, and the ambitions of women in this version of society. On that subject, the final set piece in the cave... On one hand, the production design of that cave is incredible. I love a cave with an inbuilt waterfall. There's like the light coming down. It's an inherently romantic image. And I love whenever it's used and it's used a great effect here. But at the same time, it's so easy to make the production design of a cave 
basic. Yeah. And that is not what this cave is. This cave feels like it has history. This cave is a ruin. It has so much detail to it. It's such a simple part of the production of that final sequence, but it really adds so much to what makes it work. They use a certain type of lighting in that cave that makes perfect sense there. And they use it in a few other places too. There's a lot of green lighting that you see through this movie. In particular, you'll see it in shadows in certain scenes. It'll be normal key lighting and then half the face will be in shadow and there'll be this green under lighting in the shadowy part of the face. And it gives this impression of poison, toxicity, creeping, lingering resentment and bad feelings. We see it in the scenes between Jade Fox and John, who are, of course, master and pupil. And there's a lot of dishonesty and resentment there. And then once Limu Bai, during this set piece, gets pricked and is poisoned, we see him almost entirely lit this way. And there are these great exchanges with him where Michelle Yeoh's in this warm, red, romantic light, and he's just fading into the green and shadow. That's the best acting of Chow Yun-Fat's career, in addition to the scene with the green window. Like, he's just so quiet and still and uh, the end of this movie fucking crushes me he closes out with one of the most romantic lines ever written i would rather be a ghost drifting by your side as a condemned soul than to enter heaven without you never be a lonely spirit one of the other epically romantic lines of this movie for me is i want to use my last breath yeah to tell you that i have always loved you yeah and Oh, that cuts so, so hard. And it's that final sequence where it really solidifies that this is a, it's a tragedy. And it doesn't feel that way throughout the runtime of the movie. It's not until that final sequence where it's like, oh no, there's not an out. Like we've spent all of this time on all of these women straining against their limitations. And the ultimate resolution is that there's no perfect out. Time goes on, people die. Especially warriors meet their fate in battle. That's how it goes. You gotta be ready for it. It's not the first lover Luciana's lost in her life. And I want to shout out Michelle Yeoh, because Michelle Yeoh... Alright, let me say this. Character dies, other actor crying. Never gets me. Because I'm like, yeah, people die, uh-huh, it's sad, uh-huh, uh-huh. Michelle Yeoh crying in this scene fucks me up. Because uh, like, I'm looking at her weeping over this person, and, and it's not just that he's dead. It's the time that they wasted. It's all the things that they haven't been able to say to each other up until this point. And the way that his death is kind of the only reason they are saying it to each other. And you just, it's tragic and gutting. He got to use his last breath to say, I have always loved you. She never got the chance to say it back to him. That's cutting. Pain. Pain. And she's the one that you have to see react. So that's what cuts so much more. And right after that scene, it cuts to Jean, who is left to go get the items for the antidote at the compound. It takes time. And the shot is, she's got the antidote, she's on the horse. It's a slow motion, super dramatic, hair in the breeze. And she's riding like fucking mad to get back there on time, which we know that she will not do and cannot do, because he's already dead by the time we cut to that image. So we see her, who must be full of regret for having been so central to... Jade Fox and Limu Bai's confrontation here in this cave, writing to do something that is already gone. And I think it just speaks to that inevitability of death. There's nothing that you can do. Even in legends, 
can't jump off the mountain and float down and bring somebody back to life. People pass on. That's just how it goes. Sorry. Even great monks and masters and warriors and heroes all meet the same fate in the end. But it does lead to that really beautiful reconciliation, finally, between those two women at the end once everything's been lost. There's this guilt and shame that's expressed, but through their pain, they're able to really kind of impart the big wisdom of the movie, which is just like, don't live your life in regret, because then you'll die with your regrets. I think there's something quite interesting about the idea that that's the note we leave on, that we shouldn't live our lives in regret. And then Zhang's character kills herself. And there's something kind of haunting to me in the idea that she's not able to live with the concept of not living your life in regret because in her own way she already feels like she's failed at that and can't go on and she's learned this lesson but at the same time in learning that lesson realizing she's lived her life in a way that's failed that lesson and it's also quite striking to me that the two characters that are sort of like central to this plot that uh, get to live on Michelle Yeoh's character and Lo. There's something quite interesting to me about lovers that never got to actually experience the full love of what they were looking for in their respective partners that have to go on without their partners and go on trying to figure out what life now means. Now that not only have I lived to a point where I lived with a lot of regret, but now I will never be able to reverse that. I've lost the chance to make a move. It's all regret and it will never be anything else. The ending of this movie is oppressively sad. I never come out of this movie on a high. I always come out of this movie on like an incredible emotional low, despite the fact that it has such breathtaking visual highs. It's always undercut by that like incredible emotional low of realizing that regret persists yeah i think with jean and low you could sort of look at that as like they never should have parted in the desert which they even say it's an interesting read on the ending i find it to be completely ambiguous what's going on there and i read it in more of like a poetic way of it's a legend from Lowe's village that a boy whose parents were sick was desperate and jumped off the mountain but didn't die wasn't hurt, floated away, knowing that his wish had come true. And it's like this really somber legend, myth. And to me, that ending sort of reflects how these characters became part of the myth. And it's about her regrets over her surrogate parents in Lucian and Limubai and like their sickness and sort of the pain over the love that they didn't get to have. I've always sort of read it in like a non literal way because if i look at it too literal i'm like she can fly <laughs> she can just fly over to a tree and be like fuck this i'm not dying <laughs> i don't try to wrap my head around it it almost feels like a tarkovsky film it feels like the ending of solaris or something where it's just she's floating down through the clouds and then you kind of cut back up to low who's clean cut got the robes on in this monastery and he looks different than we've ever seen him before he doesn't look so vivacious and wild he looks contemplative and somber and remorseful. The way that Lo acts and sort of looks in that final sequence does sort of, for me, add to the reading that I have that she does essentially commit suicide because she's seeing this version of Lo 
who has gone through this emotional journey of his own and realizing that she's already lost the version of the love that she thought she had. Given that the lesson that she learns from Li Shen is don't live your life in regret and taking that and coming to the realization it's too late, I already have, and you missed your chance and you had no way of recuperating it. So what is left to me has always been my reading. And, you know, I it's it's obviously an ambiguous ending. It's an ending that's open to a lot of interpretations and readings. And I've read a lot of interpretations and readings. That's always been mine. And that's why I find the ending so oppressively sad. I can't interpret it any other way. And I, it's one of those movies where if you've had a long history with it, it's really hard to reinterpret your own ending of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. totally. I almost take a Brechtian angle on it. By ending the same way as that legend, diegetic legend, it makes them part of this myth. And then it's your relationship to the myth. It's what morals and principles do you as the viewer take away from this tragedy and this love story? It's a continuation of the cycle. It's the basis of every fable. I think part of the tragedy is also if Jen does kill herself, the cycle is not broken. If she lives, the cycle can be broken. But it's only in her death that the cycle continues. So I have this interesting thought about Lucian just has a bitter, nasty ending to this film. And she's a strong, independent woman, TM. Uh, I don't mean to make a bit about that. She truly is. She's still going to be the leader of that compound. You know, maybe one day some women will be allowed in Mugan, but it's probably not going to be her. You know, there's not a next chapter that she just gets to tap into. And just live a happy life. So, like, what is the next 20, 30 years of her life? Does she get bitter and resentful the way Jade Fox is bitter and resentful? Like, everything else, there's just so many different directions that the world moves in that are outside the frame of this story. Like, we have that father-daughter pair where the father was killed by Jade Fox. And what happens to the daughter? You know, she's a young woman whose mother and father were both murdered by a criminal who no longer is living by the end of the film. Lee Mubai strikes her down at the end. But what's her story from now on? So, like, those cycles continue regardless. The entire movie is just giving you a snapshot of this place in time while constantly reminding you that there are thousands of other stories coming out of this image and out of the film that are going to continue long after the credits roll. It's yet another, 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 another parallel to In the Mood for Love, by the by, just like the way that it ends. It's a little bit yeah. of a different thing. Like, at least here they got to, like, you know, hey, we, I love you. I love you too. Okay, bye. He's dead. <laughs> I can't really tell between the two of them which is the more tragic. I just, they both hurt very bad. I think that hot people in movies should get to end up together, but what do I know? <laughs> okay, but if hot people don't end up together at the end of a movie, we get to feel better about ourselves. <laughs> a exactly. Bit. There so... we go. That's a way to put a positive spin on this. Find the positive. Find the positive. <laughs> Michelle Yeoh is like truly stunning in this movie. I think it's kind of no. fascinating that she's playing like the adult generation when I watched this movie and she just looks like such a baby to me. Now that, you know, she's been in everything everywhere and crazy rich Asians, she's all over the how, place now. How old is Michelle Yeoh in this movie? Because um, she reads to me as 30s. someone playing like an older generation. That's credit to her performance that she's able to embody that seniority. So she's 60 now. So she would have been in her like mid to late, late 30s, 30s here. 
Yeah. yeah. Which reads to me as the generation that she's playing in that film. But at the same yeah. time, she looks incredible. Like she looks yeah. incredible today for her age. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, she's just one of those people that who's always looked incredible and probably mm-hmm. will always look incredible. She's going to be 90 years old and look better than all of us. Again, hot people can't be in movies that have happy endings. It's not allowed. <laughs> it's such an understated part that she has, but so vital. And I think that's really on, you know, Ang Lee and the script of this film. Like Zong's part is particularly more juicy, more complicated, more mm. obvious in some ways. She gets a lot more, I don't know, they both get a lot of great action scenes, but she's like the action ingenue. And so it's like necessarily the character is getting overshadowed but she's not the kind of person that's like overtly envious and bitter and competitive. So she just kind of underplays all of her emotions in a way where it's like you get the whole spectrum of it, but within this stoic warrior character. Impressive work. Yeah, I just realized we've been talking about the movie as long as the movie's runtime. Yeah, this movie should be three hours long. I can't believe it's only two. I know. It feels longer than it is in the good way. Mm-hmm. It just feels like this giant sweeping epic how can you fit all these fight scenes and that big flashback how can it all fit in the two hours does it make sense i don't know it's it's witchcraft honestly i think it part of it's because it's got a little bit of a subdued conflict yeah. it's really more about these two relationships and the difficulties in those relationships there is one antagonist in jade fox that binds both stories kind of because she's not even necessarily like the main inciting bad guy in everything that's happening no she's not so there's never like a oh we all gotta gang up and fight the big evil super tough person it's pretty clear that Lee Mubai can just take her out at any time as long as you yeah. find her so it, it really kind of de-emphasizes the big sweeping conflict in favor of the smaller intimate conflicts and I think that probably contributes to how it can have such a tight runtime is that it's not just getting caught up in all imaginations like that, even though it's got so many characters. You mentioned your favorite shot earlier. I think my favorite shot is in the bamboo forest. There's a close-up of just her face in slow motion with her hair like swooped to the side. It looks kind of like the memoirs of a geisha poster, and I think they kind of ripped off that shot for that poster. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a lot more stunning in motion than it is on a poster for a movie that's not that good. That's my favorite shot, too. I think the one right after it where you see Chow Yun fat upside down. It's the same shot, basically. It's the cut. Yeah, hers you're sweeping from left to right across her face. His you're going from right to left. And the camera's kind of like pivoting. It's rotating as you're going across him, and he's upside down. So it's just like super disorienting. But it's if we're going by the mise-en-scene, it's kind of her naivete and youth. And then it's him turning her ideals upside down on her. Do you really know everything that there is to know? Or is there even more to this than what you can see from your perspective? This movie's like a mise-en-scene clinic. You could go frame by frame. and Every image is not just significant, but almost all of them have multiple meanings based on what is happening and who the characters are in frame and all that type of stuff. So many beautiful like close-ups, you know, stuff where it'll be like, John and Lo, and they're seeing the father out in the desert looking for her, and it's just kind of like them in the desert setting and just the wilderness. Ugh, 
So it's a movie that I think you could really, we have talked for about the duration of the movie, about the movie, as Cole said, <laughs> and like could keep going, could keep digging into each little detail. It's just like that, I think. The favorite, which we covered a few episodes back, was my favorite movie that we had ever talked about on this show. It's not anymore. It's this one. It's Crouching Tiger. And it'll probably be a little bit before we talk about anything I like more than it. <laughs> a special film. Really, really great that people are getting to see it in a theatrical format. Maybe some people getting to see it for the first time, and I've enjoyed getting to talk to you both about it. So thank you, James. Thank you, Cole. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope that you will tune in for future episodes. We're probably going to start talking about some 2023 new releases. We got some sight and sound movies to be talking about here soon, so we'll have new episodes for you shortly. But for now, we'll just talk to you on the next one. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.